everyone and welcome to our gem pursuit this morning we are going to have a slightly different episode for a number of reasons so obviously we finished up our recent series on our firm favorites with our recent cartier episode uh, which i hope you all enjoyed this morning this is our bonus episode because we really love everyone the enthusiasm the questions we've been getting on instagram the feedback through the website and stuff has been brilliant so we couldn't stop there at least could we no, I definitely not. We always have to keep people guessing, Matthew. And today we have with us Jimmy Weldon as our special guest. Good morning, Jimmy. Good morning. Good morning. Jimmy is uh, my father and specialist in antique jewellery and antique Irish silver. And uh, we're going to have some questions for Jimmy today. And obviously, as always, I'm joined by my trusty co-host, uh, Elise Ketcher. Good morning, Elise. Good morning, everyone. First of all, um, Jimmy, just a question starting off. You're in the business a long time. Roughly, when did you start in the in the industry? And I know you do, you do antique jewelry and silver, but what was your first, your earliest memory of working in this industry? Well, the very earliest memory, Matthew, was um, in about 1953, when I was I don't know, I'd have been seven or eight or something, and there was an auction on down in the Keys or near the Keys in Dublin of um, Naylor, Henry Naylor, and he was the biggest antique dealer at that time. And I think he had passed away, and there was an auction near Liffey Street. And I remember going down with my father to collect some things that had been bought at the auction, but that's the very earliest memory. And um, Naylor was a very significant antique dealer. I never met him, but that was the first encounter with the antique trade that I had. And then there was a gap. I didn't. I didn't get involved after that until directly until about 1961 or two, when I bought my first item. And the, I remember funny. Remember the very first item I bought, which was down in Garland's auction house on the Keys. There were two auction houses at that time on the Keys: O'Reilly's and Garland's. And Garland's had been there since I think the 30s or so. But anyway, bought the first thing I bought was a. 15 carat gold bar brooch with a twist of uh, uh, rope twist knotted on it. And I bought it for £2.10, shillings, £2.5. And I sold it for a fiver shortly afterwards. And I was hooked. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> like your first golf shot. If you hit a really good one, you spend the rest of your life trying to replicate it. But um, mm -hmm. in our last season, I know you've heard uh, some of the episodes. So. We were talking about the firm favourites and we noticed a pattern through a lot of these things for Cartier in uh, Harry Winston, Fabergé that, uh, and in, in Bulgaria as well, actually, that there, there was a couple of generations of jewellers and usually it tended to be a father would start who'd kind of work really hard to get a, an operation established and the, the children would take over and then it, it would kind of... It seemed to be at the, the third generation, it seemed to really expedite in a lot of these companies but were your was your father in the business or can you remember was yeah. his father or when was the the yeah. origin of it well it started in the very beginning my grandfather who's also jimmy and he came to dublin from kilcock he grew up in kilcock and he came to dublin and got a uh, employment with kelly's of westmoreland street i think it was terence kelly of westmoreland street and they were jewellers, silversmiths, on the corner of Fleet Street and Westmoreland Street. And the grandfather worked there for some years, and then he went out on his own. 
um, and he was very active in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Uh, he was very successful he, and he dealt he was he was known to be the best judge of diamonds in Ireland um, but he also dealt in, in fine silver and he dealt in paintings like he would have dealt in Gainsborough's and things in the 20s and that so he would have uh, always bought top quality things and I suppose that kind of approach to buying and selling has been endemic in our family we always try and buy nice things they always cost a little bit dearer, but they're well worth it. And he was he was very successful. And then my father, uh, who, who, who was Jimmy as well, but he was known as Wally. Wally was his uh, pet name, I think. And he was a, um, he started uh, no more or less beside the Savoy Cinema. And then he moved to Clarendon Street uh, in 1940 when he got married. And uh, he was he was very successful there as well. But he unfortunately hit um, health problems and, and he passed away in 1964. And I had started about 1963 and uh, worked in the shop. My mother had taken over when father became unwell and um, she, she, she guided the business through difficult times. And uh, then it grew from the, the 60s. It grew and grew and grew and uh, we're blessed with good fortune throughout. But we always try and do really nice quality things. Uh, and we'll always pay a little bit more to buy something that is that has that little bit of quality and extra uh, attraction to it. That must have been a really difficult time to kind of be in the business in the 1960s, especially in Ireland. What did it actually look like? Like who was who was your customer? What were people buying? And what were you like particularly interested in the 1960s? Yeah, the 60s were very interesting. Um the economy seemed to improve through the 60s and you actually ended up with a bit of a boom in I think it was 1968 and then it kind of the what would you say declined a bit in the late 60s it was a bit of a crash in fact in the after 1968 but yeah and, and, and people were discovering the attractions of old Irish silver um, and in a way the history of antique silver is Interesting in that it, it didn't start until relatively late. I mean, in the 1870s or 80s, uh, Robert Day in Cork, I think, was one of the first to identify. And then, of course, the great study was, was done by Dudley Westrop, who, and he wrote the Irish section in, in the uh, Jackson's book, which, which has stood the test of time remarkably. Westrop was an amazingly knowledgeable man and very methodical in his study. But the knowledge and interest in Irish silver then grew right through the 20th century and um, it, was, it, was, it was fresh and interesting to people. People were very interesting in silver and the history that brought the arms and the crests and the items that would tell you who originally owned the pieces and then perhaps the history of those families. And it was, it was I, I found it fascinating always. So one thing that I wanted to ask you about specifically when it comes to um, silver and specifically Irish silver, because I'm not, um, it's one of my kind of weaker points. I'm not great with silver, um, as we can attest, because I remember you showed me a piece a while back, <laughs> a very, very important piece, and I had no idea what it was. 
um, which is always fun to actually be taught something new about something, you know, especially in the jewelry trade when you find something that you have literally no idea about and you can learn. That's one of the best things about the trade is kind of getting another little tool in your toolkit, I kind of call it. But um, we know that silver itself um, first became kind of a global currency in 600 BC. And that was when it was used as coins. So people used it for trading and, you know, from there it kind of grew and grew and grew into what we know the silver trade as today. But what is like the the earliest kind of Irish silver pieces that you've ever come in contact with that I guess are still functioning, not things that you'd see in a museum, but actually things that people could use. Yeah. Well, it's the, um, the earliest Irish silver hallmarked Irish silver that I've handled, uh, though I had a pair of wonderful spoons from 1663, uh, and they were absolutely amazing. And now, English silver, you were getting English silver much earlier because the hallmarking there goes back to, I think, the late 1300s or early 1400s. When Ireland, no, the charter, there was a charter uh, in 1605, which was superseded by uh, the charter of 1637, and that's the relevant charter. So Irish silver, as we know it with the harp, starts in 1637. But you can't collect early pieces because there aren't any available. I mean, the, the, the churches would have some early pieces, um, but in private hands, there isn't any. And it was melted down. A lot of stuff was melted down over the centuries. I'm just actually reminded that the, the, the Irish word for silver is arrogant, which is also the word for money. Uh, and it refers to what you were saying earlier there about silver being used as coinage as well as being for domestic uses. But um, yeah, the Irish silver really doesn't is not available prior to I say the earliest I've ever handled uh, was sixteen sixty three. Uh, anything that's prior that's still to incredible though. Mm. Sixteen sixty three mm. is mm. you know, mm. and also how many mm. years before you started in the business? Three hundred years before you started in the business. So <laughs> very interesting to be able to do that. But you were, you mentioned something about hallmarking. Now, a lot of the listeners wouldn't actually understand a lot about what hallmarks are. And I just wanted to kind of get your ideas on what an assay office is and what the function of an assay office is so that our listeners can kind of understand a little bit more about what happens at an assay office and why hallmarks are so important. Yeah, the hallmarks are really important on old silver. And if you're buying old silver, the hallmarks should you should get clear hallmarks. But the the Irish the Dublin Assay Office started in 1637, and it was run by the Company of Goldsmiths of Dublin, which still exists and which I'm proud to be a member. Um, and we oversee the assay the running of the Assay Office in Dublin, and it's an, the Assay Office is an independent test or trial of silver and gold and platinum and precious metals um, it's completely independent of uh, the trade even though say I'm a member of the trade and I'm in the I'm in the company of goldsmiths the assay office itself is completely independent there's no direct interaction whatever between the one and the other um, so every piece of say gold or silver that's manufactured has to be submitted to this independent body who test it 
The word assay means it's coming from the French assay to try, and it's tested to make sure that it's of the correct standard, the correct purity, so that it's three quarters pure gold. Say if it's eighteen karat gold, it's ninety two point five pure silver if it's silver, and. If the piece comes below the standard that it's supposed to be, it's broken. It's not allowed to proceed. And it has to be remelted and brought up to standard. The, the gold metal has to be brought up to standard. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a consumer guarantee that has existed for centuries. Um, started under the reign of uh, King Charles I. It's, it's the best form of consumer protection, I think, that there is. I uh, don't think it's anything better, and it's and the other thing is that the company goes was it is the last surviving guild of the city of Dublin. There were numerous guilds uh, at different times, but the uh, the assay office run by the company of Goldsmiths um, that is the last surviving guild of the city of Dublin. So the wonderful history involved in it, and all the people that were uh, active in it at different times. Um, our greatest silversmith in Dublin, uh, a gentleman by the name of Thomas Bolton, he was. Uh, master warden of the company at different times and his work can still be seen with the clear hallmarks uh, of the the date and the maker's mark is, is on it as well and the harp crown which is the symbol of Irish manufacture. I, I love how you what you've said about its consumer protection because um, there are a lot of countries that actually don't have assay offices. One of the, the biggest in the world, biggest economies in the world, America actually doesn't have this standard. And we do find that, you know, sometimes gold pieces that come through from America may test a little bit over or a little bit under the standard that they're marked. Whereas here, it, it really is a consumer protection for us. We know that if it is hallmarked 18, it has to be that fineness. And likewise with silver 925, it has to be that fineness as well. So it it is one of the, the ways that, you know, personally in the trade for us, when we look at gold pieces even, it's kind of, we don't have to do any additional work if we know it's got a hallmark we can be like yes okay that the work's been done for us whereas if it hasn't we have to then go through numerous other tests to make sure that it has um and i think think, uh, if you're there's some really interesting terms there as well so for when when we say 925 and you you would have heard that means it's 925 parts silver out of a thousand which is your sterling silver so it's pretty much almost pure silver obviously just mixed with something small but uh then the gold when we when we're talking about uh 75% pure gold that's 18 carat gold and that's 18 parts gold out of 24 so that's a very high purity of gold and it's funny what you say Elise about the the standard coming out of the US because you have to be very careful because sometimes it could just be a little bit under uh and I think it's so cool Jimmy that the, the Irish assay offices go goes back so far, albeit the, the English one goes back further, but it's it's and it, was it always it's was it always in Dublin Castle or was it? Is that no, a, no, indeed, no. It, no, it, it had it? different venues, yeah. different times. It was in Werbrook Street um, at one time, I think, and then it it was it moved to the, to, um, the Custom House, uh, and it was there until the Custom House was burnt down in was it twenty one or twenty two, and then it moved to the present uh, location in uh, Dublin Castle. But it's still in the, in the castle, within the castle walls now, and uh, hopefully that will be, be there for time immemorial. 
But, uh, you know, it, it has a, the study of the history of the ASEAN was actually very interesting, and there are several people who are doing, doing work on it, including uh, Dr. Thomas Staden from America. Um, so the history of where the locations were and who the people were who, who worked, because a lot of the silversmiths themselves were involved in running the assay office, not directly, but, uh, you know, at, at a slight distance, because there always had to be a separation there, so, so that the assay office was totally independent and their judgment was always independent. And the mark for the Dublin assay office, what would we be looking for today for that particular mark if we were looking at a piece of Irish silver? Yeah, well, the, uh, the the marks have evolved over the centuries, and today you get the figure of Hibernia, uh, which originated as a duty mark in 1729-30, and that mark has become the standard of of uh, the assay office for gold and silver. And for, for gold, you get the standard mark, which is 3, 0.375 for 9 carat, uh, 0.750 for 18 carat and 0.585 for 14 carat. I'm not sure whether the 22 carat is still uh, uh, active or not. The, the, the carat, the purity of the gold, the carat, is, changes at various times. For one stage we, we had 12 carat and we had 10 carat in Dublin. So that can change, by that can be altered by Acts of Parliament. Um, but um, the standard marks, and then you you can get the the harp crown, which is the um, traditional mark of Irish silver. That is is still available, can be had as well, um, but is not obligatory. And the maker's mark, then before a piece is hallmarked, the maker must whoever has made it must put their registered mark on the piece, and that is not a hallmark. But it becomes a hallmark as soon as the other marks are added by the assay office. So the maker's mark is is not a hallmark initially, but it becomes a hallmark once the other marks are added. Uh, so it's a very good system, and it provides great protection. And you know, it's 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 the customer is guaranteed the purity of the metal that they're they're buying. Yeah. So basically, what we would see on our ideal marks that we would see on something would be the assay office mark, which would be Hibernia. The standard that it is, so if it's silver, 925, if it's gold, um, 750 for 18 carat. And then the la- lastly would be a, maybe initials or a, a kind of symbol for a maker. And that would kind of give us all of the different things that we need to know about that piece. There is, there is I, I omitted to say, there is another mark as well for, for gold and it's the unicorn's head. And that is for high carat gold. Uh, I think it's eighteen carat gold that is used for. Um, so they have a set standard of number of marks, and it's, there's a there's a chart published by the assay office which can guide people as regards. And in fact, every jeweller is required by law to have the chart showing the various marks that are ob- obligatory on manufactured uh, gold and silver. I just remember looking at some old pieces of silver from time to time, and you'd see other things sometimes you'd see like little numbers like scratched into them now this wouldn't be a a stamp mark this looks like kind of someone's got a some sort of device and scratch like a number into it or um sometimes little codes what what are they or have you ever seen those before yeah yeah that's that's actually quite interesting that is what they call i think you're referring to what's called the scratch weight 
So if you had a silver teapot, say, that was hallmarked in 1720, a beautiful Irish teapot made in that period, it would usually have a scratch weight on the bottom. Um, now, I don't know whether the assay office put that on or whether the manufacturer put it on, but the reason behind it was that there was a charge of sixpence per ounce for hallmarking silver. And uh, so if your teapot weighed 20 ounces and 15 pennyweights, which is 20.75 ounces, you would be charged uh, sixpence per ounce uh, for that hallmarking service. And the weights were the weights of the silver was relevant, directly related to the charge you paid for the hallmarking service. Uh, and also people, I suppose, could, th th their wealth included their inventory of silver in those times. And if you had, we say, wealthy family would have maybe a thousand ounces of silver, that would be worth so much per ounce. And uh, and the scratch weights helped, I suppose, it would facilitate it. The, uh, the calculation of your total um, inventory of silver. But uh, it was originated, the ori origin of the scratch weight was to do with the hallmarking in the assay office and the charge that was to be made for uh, the hallmarking service. See, I'm learning, I'm learning so much. Always learn a lot from you, Jimmy, when I listen to you talk about silver. Um, but I really want to know, like, how you kind of fueled this passion like where when did you fall in love with silver what's your first recollection of kind of silver entering into your psyche I suppose and maybe the first piece that caught your eye well funny again that's actually quite clear in my mind and it happened in 1963 and it was in my own home we lived in Rathfarnham in a house called Tourville um, which is sadly demolished nowadays, but uh, we lived there. And in 1963, the father, my father was unwell, and I remember being in the room with him, and we didn't have much silver in the house or anything like that, but we did have but one piece which I noticed clearly, and it was a helmet-shaped sugar bowl, uh, and it was deepish dark colour, unpolished, and unpolished silver is always most beautiful. But I remember clearly looking underneath the foot of it. Now, it was like the shape of a helmet that would have been used in military terms in the 18th century. So it had a pedestal foot and a swing handle on top. Uh, and when you invert it, it looked just like a helmet. But anyway, this piece uh, was made... I looked at the marks, and the marks were clear. And you could see the hammer marks wrote as you went around the foot, the shape of the foot, where it had been carefully raised and very skillfully raised by a silversmith. And when you looked at the hallmarks, the maker's mark was GB, and that was the mark of Gustavus Byrne. And I was remembered because you, you don't meet many Gustavus in one's lifetime. But anyway, this was by Gustavus Byrne. And he was a very interesting man because I don't know much about him, but his work was always very beautiful. Um, and the helmet bowls are not particularly rare. Um, and But this was a very beautiful piece. But I remember f really almost falling in love with the whole phenomenon of the shaping of the silver, delicately done. It was nicely polished on the outside although not clean the, the finish was lovely and pure and underneath inside it was much rougher and the silversmiths didn't bother didn't worry about the uncovered areas um, the areas that couldn't be seen 
uh, you know, when in use. And they didn't bother too much about finishing them off. But there was a certain beauty in the roughness of it, in a way. Um, and it was made in, I think, about 1802 by this man, Gustavus Byrne. Um, and I was hooked, absolutely hooked, on the beauty of this piece. And funnily enough, um, although the piece was subsequently sold, uh, by a curious circuit thing, I still have the piece. I have it in my own possession now. Um, and I say it's not particularly valuable, it, but it's a story. No. No. <laughs> no, that sounds like a family heirloom for sure. Yeah, well, it's special to me, I think, definitely, you know. Yeah. it's a, it's. I think that's what um, with jewellery pieces and also silver is all about, is actually the story. And your story has now been added to that piece. So I'm sure um, I'm sure your family members will probably be biting at each other's ankles for it, Jimmy. Mm. But, <laughs> but, but since then, I mean, I've had the privilege of handling the most wonderful pieces of early silver. Um, I can remember handling uh, one time a wonderful Galway oval sauce boat on, well, on an oval foot. And... Um, which is, that would, Galway is extraordinarily rare. Um, and I've had some absolutely wonderful pieces and uh, we've had so many pieces by Thomas Bolton and all the rest of it. And But since that day, when I was effectively hooked on the subject, uh, I can remember almost every piece. Not, not as clearly, but remember them in the sense of acknowledge them and I know them and I'd know them again if I see them again. You kind of always know your cheap as they say in biblical terms you you know your pieces that you've you've handled you know i think so i i I know so for myself with jewelry in the trade especially very special pieces that you've seen you know you've seen them Mm, before mm. it's almost like greeting an old friend when you see them again but with you in particular silver really does like touch a special nerve in you and you have such a an amazing breadth of knowledge when it comes to the subject that if I ever found a piece, you'd be the first person that I kind of contacted about it. Um, But I want to know what your most precious silver find has been. Like your, what is considered, I guess the most valuable outside of sentimentality, just out of side of sentiment, just what has been the most, incredible, valuable, rare piece that you've ever found? There's, there's been quite a few, now, to be quite truthful here, and, and to be hard to pick out one. I do remember one, there's one particular piece, I suppose, that I would be very fond of. Um, and funny, you kind of remember a lot of the time where the pieces went to and, you know, what collections they may have ended up in if they were in museums or whatever. But there was a, an elderly gentleman came in to me one day and he had a few bits and pieces which were of no consequences. But in the midst of them, there was an octagonal kitchen pepper pot. Now, that doesn't sound particularly amazing. But this the early pepper pots were quite big, of good size. And this was uh, octagonal, which Irish octagonal silver is highly desired. And when I looked underneath, it had a mark, which was kind of not a very well-known mark. But it was the mark of Adam Bion of Cork. And Adam Bion, or Bion um, he was a Huguenot. And his output was small. 
but his work was amazing. Like most of the Huguenot silversmiths that came to Ireland, and indeed otherwise, they were wonderful silversmiths. But this was absolutely a gem. It had a handle, little sort of wire handle on one side, and it had a lift-off lid. But it was stunningly beautiful, stunningly beautiful. And here it was, and it within a collection, small collection of items, which were of no consequence. The other pieces were useless, nothing, very scrap metal almost. But this was an absolute gem. And um, we subsequently bought it. He he. he he did. The gentleman didn't sell it to me on that day, but he, I made him a, a very uh, precise offer, which he subsequently took. Um, but that piece, I handled that piece two or three times subsequently. But it would. It was an amazing. That was an amazing find, if you like, in in the context in the background of almost nothing. But it it was that was that was a wonderful piece. We're we're up bright and early here in Dublin doing the podcast, so you can hear the. As, you, as everyone has known, and I don't know if you've seen the South William Street area, there's, uh, there's a lot of cleaning going on there this morning, so you'll have to bear with us. But um, My last question for you, Jimmy, and this is going to be a, an important one, I think, to close. Um, if you were talking to a younger Jimmy Weldon in 1963, what advice would you have for him now? The advice is, I think, and it's, it's a very good question, it's the advice is exactly where we started out from. To, if you're buying things, buy quality. Uh, always quality, because quality is what matters. Goodness is what matters. And it's the essence of, of us all, in truth. Where we'll be judged in turn by our intrinsic goodness or our behavioural goodness. And so it is with goods. They should be good. No point in buying a three-carat diamond if, if it's a piece of rubbish. And don't Irish people have traditionally bought stones and diamonds on their weight? If they have it's five carats or three carats, whatever it is, in a piece of jewellery, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if it's not good. It isn't worth having. It shouldn't. I, mean, I wouldn't have it in the shop. It should be good. And the better it is, the safer your investment, because the the item will always be good, irrespective of the economy. Uh, and goodness will shine through ultimately.